millions of Christians face intense persecution and risk their lives for the sake of the gospel. Vom Oz Radio supports persecuted Christians, giving a voice to the testimony of those who have been denied a voice. Our programs inform and encourage Christians in Australia and around the world to mobilize and to stand with our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. Welcome to Vom Oz Radio, voice for the persecuted. Welcome again to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Today's episode is going to be a dramatic one, including stories of government intrigue and historical events. But it will also remind us, no matter what the circumstances, God is in control. My name is Todd Nettleton. I am connected online with Tat Stewart. He was the last pastor of the Community Church of Tehran inside the Islamic Republic of Iran. Tat, welcome to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Hey, Todd. It's great to be with you. We're looking forward to having this conversation with you. I have been looking forward to it as well. We're going to go back in a few minutes to kind of get some background. But first, I want to kind of start out right in the middle of the story. Five months after the Islamic Revolution in Iran, you moved to Tehran. How did God call you to Iran? Why did you think, uh, even though they're in the middle of a revolution, this is where I should take my family, this is where I should go? How did that come about? Well, a lot of people thought we were crazy, that's for sure. But uh, let's start back here. My wife and I both grew up in Iran. My wife was born in Iran. And so when I finished seminary, I thought, well, you know, I have a responsibility to the Lord to see if there's a way that I could go back to Iran. And that was before the revolution. So I wrote the pastor of the Community Church of Tehran and said, you know, could I come and do youth work for you or be on your staff? And he wrote back and said, we don't have a budget for that. And so I thought, phew, I've, I've, I've fulfilled my obligation to go to Iran. Now I can move on with my life. And so I accepted a call to a small church in New Jersey. And in uh, after the sixth year of ministry, I was on a youth conference, and my uh, we received a letter. My wife opened the letter, and it was an invitation from the Evangelical Church of Iran, the church that Presbyterians had founded and had been registered since 1860 in Iran. And uh, it invited us to come to Pastor St. Christopher's Church in Abadan, Iran, which was a dual-language congregation. And uh, my wife, before that, had pretty much indicated she'd been to Iran, she'd done that. She wasn't exactly excited about going back <laughs> with two children, uh, ages uh, six and four. And so when she called me uh, at the conference, she said, Ted, are you sitting down? And I thought, oh, boy, she's had a car accident. Something horrible's happened. And, uh, and she said, we've received this letter, and I'm ready to go. Right then I knew that that was God's call because I had talked to the Lord. And I said, Lord, I'm not taking my wife anywhere that she doesn't feel called to because that's just not good for life and the marriage. So we applied to the mission board. And, of course, that took a, a time. And after I resigned from the church, the, the uh, revolution came to bloom and uh, we couldn't go. So for six months, we, we just kind of treaded water in some missionary housing in Ventnor, New Jersey, uh, and then um, the former pastor and others in Iran went to the offices of one of the Ayatollahs, Ayatollah Talabani, 
who later they believed actually was was murdered. He was the more liberal, open-minded one, and the question was posed to him. Would uh, the new regime tolerate a church for expatriates, uh, for American Christians, European Christians? And he said, of course. And so he sent a telex to the then uh, embassy in, in Washington, D.C., Iranian embassy. We went and we got our, got our visas. And so uh, at that point, you know, there wasn't the Islamic government hadn't really come into fruition. Uh, there was still a, a political uh, diplomatic relationships with Iran. And so we flew and arrived in Iran in, in July of uh, 1979, just five months after Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini had uh, come flying in on his Air France uh, jumbo jet. Now, obviously, it was a country you were familiar with. It's a country that you grew up in, but also it's a country that has just had this Islamic revolution. How much fear did you have about taking that that ministry job? Well, I think uh, because of our sort of impressions from our youth, we always saw the Iranians as hospitable and kind people. And and so I don't think we had too much fear till we got off the plane in Tehran. And uh, we were surrounded by what looked like somebody's junior high group in, in, in camouflage uniforms, all carrying automatic machine guns and scowling at us. Uh, that's when the fear began to, <laughs> to, to really take over. Uh, but as we came into the airport and we were waiting for our luggage, uh, all of the guys that worked in the luggage were from Azerbaijan. The, the, the labor class in Iran tends to be from the province of Azerbaijan. And since I grew up in Tabriz, Azerbaijan, and I knew their language, and so when I started talking to them in, in Azari Turkish, they all gathered around me and said, our, our brother has come home. And so uh, I, I, got, I got this wonderful welcome from the luggage handlers. Uh, and then as we came through customs, so we had no problem because we had the multiple entry uh, work permit visas from the Islamic Republic of Iran. And there we were met by representatives of the Iranian church who took us to a really nice hotel and we had breakfast and uh Everything seemed pretty good. Uh, what really, Tehran was normal until the until at dusk. And then after dark is when the shooting started and a lot of scrimmages in the city. And so we basically stayed home during the day and certainly at night. Now, did you ever have any more contact with the, uh, the Ayatollah who signed, who said, yes, we, we would welcome a pastor? Did you ever have any relationship or any contact with him? Or that's just how God opened that door? Just how God opened that door. And while we were there, he, he passed away. Uh, and the, 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 the talk on the street was that because he was not conforming to Ayatollah Khomeini's vision of the future, that he was poisoned. But he was such a popular guy that about two or three days, Tehran completely shut down. The streets were filled with mourners, and uh, we just kind of laid low. We learned to lay low a lot during those days. Okay, so we kind of jumped in in the middle of the story, but I want to go back. As you mentioned, you had lived in Iran as a young boy. How how did that happen? Well, I think uh, we, I have to go back to why my father and mother felt called to Iran, because I think it's a significant story. Uh, when my father was born, he was one of twins, and the first one was stillborn, and they weren't sure he was going to live. He was about a month premature. 
and they brought in a relative who was a godly man, and he prayed, and he prayed this prayer over my father. Lord, if you spare this child, we consecrate him to Afghanistan. Now, I don't know how many prayers like that God ever hears, and I don't know if this man even knew where Afghanistan was in 1919, but that's the way the Lord led him to pray. And so my father grew up with a passion for Afghanistan, not even knowing that who how it was prayed over. And so I found in the family archives, you know, scrapbooks of him when he was a young man collecting pictures from Afghanistan. So after World War II, when he'd been a captain in the army, a doctor, and got married, they went to the mission board and said, we want to go to Afghanistan. And they laughed and said, Afghanistan does not accept any Christian visas, any Christian missionaries, but we have openings in Iran. And so my dad said, well, it's next to Afghanistan, I'll take Iran. And so in 1947, they arrived in Tabriz after about a month's journey to get there. And I was a little under two years old when I made my entree into Iran. Did you basically learn the language and learn English almost simultaneously? Absolutely. What kids, what people forget is kids learn the language of the people they relate to. Uh-huh. And so and so actually I learned Armenian, which I've mostly forgotten, and I learned Azerbaijan Turkish, and I learned English because I had to deal with people that spoke those languages constantly around me. Uh, and so by God's grace, I learned the Azadi language without any accent, learned it as just the way kids learn it. And uh, later my parents were transferred to Mashhad over near the Afghan border, and there at, at age uh, about 12, I started learning Farsi. And so uh, as God would have it, I learned two of these languages of Iran as a child, the same way basically Iranians learn it. When you're talking to someone, do you pull up a word in, in a different language? <laughs> oh, yeah. I want Because we have, as you know, we have a lot of Iranian uh, Christians that are from, uh, uh, that are Armenian. And uh, when they get together, they start speaking Armenian. So I have to tell them, I said, now you've got to realize I understand a lot of what you're saying. So be careful what you say. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I'll drop a few phrases here and there. I'm not fluent in Armenian, but the language seems very familiar to me. And I probably could learn more if I if I had to. But I have stayed fluent in uh, Azadi Turkish, uh, which is also spoken in the Republic of Azerbaijan. And uh, I've uh, taken mission trips up into that country. And, and uh, right away they say, oh, you must be from Iran. <laughs> because uh, we, we have more Persian words in our Azadi, and they have more Russian words in their Azadi. Ah, interesting. So you've talked about the road that your parents took and, and the long journey to even get there and then get on the ground and get established. What did you learn from their example, or what did you see in their example that you've tried to put into practice in your own ministry and in your own life? Well, one thing that I think is important to note is that children pick up the attitude of their parents. And what I learned is that my mother and father really loved Iranians. Now, a lot of missionaries didn't because there's a big cultural gap. There's a lot of times where there's misunderstanding. And my mother not only loved Iranians, but she loved to witness to them. She started a ministry of teaching English to university students in Tabriz uh, for free, as long as the textbook could be the Gospel of Mark. Uh, And so I think she probably went through the Gospel of Mark with nearly four or 500 
students over the course of her time there because she'd have two or three at a time and they'd come to our house once a week. And my father uh, showed a great kindness and sacrificial spirit towards helping Iranians. And so I grew up thinking, Iran is great. Iranian people are wonderful. I like the food. I like the culture. I like everything. And I think just their their love for the Lord and their love for the Iranian people had a great uh, influence on my life. In our home, we were required to go to, to English church service every Sunday and the Turkish service. So I went to two services throughout my whole young life. And in the Turkish service, there were Muslim converts. There weren't many. There were some. I would say 80% of the church were from Armenian and Assyrian uh, Orthodox and Nestorian background that had become Protestants and become believers in Christ. And I I remember uh, there was a whole chain of, of, of blind men that would come to church. There was a German ministry that reached out to blind people. And these blind guys all knew the Lord. And they all could sing almost all the hymns by heart. And I remember as an eight or nine-year-old, I would go and I would help one of them find a seat and go sit by him. And I remember looking into his eyes and seeing this glimmer of joy in his life, even though he couldn't see. And I said to myself, he can see something I can't see. And he, he was seeing the Lord in some ways. And so I saw in the church Muslims who had become Christians but I also saw the, the, the tremendous crisis because the Armenian and Syrian Christians didn't accept them often as genuine believers, which is understandable. And the Muslim community had rejected them. So I remember my parents agonizing over individuals who felt accepted nowhere, not by the church and rejected by the Muslim community. And that, that troubled me as a young man. And I, I felt very bad about that. Your wife, you said, was born in Iran. What what were her parents doing there? Well, her parents were colleagues. Uh, her, her father was a medical missionary with the Presbyterian Church, as mine. And they were sent to the city of Mashhad. And they arrived in Iran in 1946, I think. And uh, my wife was then born in 1948. So they got married and came to Iran on their honeymoon. Now, here's the interesting story. I met my wife when she was two weeks old and I was two years old. Now, most people say, oh, you got to be kidding. But no, there was a first-termers conference in Tehran for all the new missionaries that were new on the field. And so Patty's mom, uh, Dr. and Mrs. Murray, Nancy and Tom Murray, they had just had this their first little child two weeks earlier, but they made the trip to Tehran on a bus, which probably shook the fillings out of their teeth. And my parents were there. And so my mother was said is invited to see this new baby. And I am taken in with my mother because I'm only two years old. And uh, I have absolutely no recollection of this. But uh, we, uh, we have been told by our parents that this was the first time that we, we saw each other. And my mother, in what we call prophetic hindsight, says, uh, I knew right then you were going to get married. <laughs> <laughs> it was love at first sight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So let's jump back now to 1979, and and you land in Tehran. What what was your what did you expect that your job was going to be when you got there? Well, because uh, we applied for a visa under the uh, under the sort of title that I would become the pastor of the community church, and so the Iranian government saw me as a person that was pastoring expatriates, 
And so our first assignment was to find housing, which we did, and then to begin language study, because after all, we had not been in the country over 15 years. And the, and the, and the Farsi that we spoke was not theological or biblical Farsi. It was what kids talk on the playground. So we began the lessons, and I began leading the services for the community church. I met with the synod. Uh, of the Iranian Presbyterian Church, and they asked if I would serve as an advisor to the young people. And so uh, along with that, I began to, uh, we had we have four congregations. We had four congregations in Tehran. Two of them were Farsi speaking. One was Armenian speaking, one was Assyrian speaking. And so I began to move to these, these young people groups and begin to, with my broken Farsi, uh, start to to do some Bible lessons, and I began to disciple six. I chose six young people, and I spent the year discipling those six young people. We're talking today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with Tat Stewart. He is a longtime servant of the Iranian Church, both inside the country and outside the country. So. What was the attitude within the country as a whole at that time? The, you know, the Ayatollah had just come back into the country. The Islamic Revolution was happening. Was there a sense of hopefulness? Was there a sense of fear? What was kind of the, the spirit of the country? Well, of course, our main contact was within the context of the church. And the church certainly was under great fear. And not only that, people were, were abandoning the ship. People were leaving Iran as fast as they could. Anybody that had means, anybody that had bank accounts in California or wherever uh, was headed out. The, the people that we interacted with were basically still filled with rage at America and the Shah. And so anywhere I would go, I would get lectured. Once they found that out from America, I would have to tolerate lectures about how America and the Shah had destroyed their country. And remember, this is the first months right after the revolution. You won't find that spirit any longer in Iran. But then uh, we, were, we were sort of lumped in with uh, part of the problem. And so because of that, we kept a low profile. I mean, even riding taxis and so on. The fact that we could speak the language was a big help in the fact that we said we we loved Iran and and we stayed away from making political assessments but just sort of <laughs> listening so listening a lot of listening a lot of listening <laughs> so let's talk about November the 4th uh, 1979 the day the American embassy was taken over obviously it's a it's a day a lot of us have heard stories about we've maybe watched movies about you were in Tehran. What was your experience that day? Well, it was a Sunday. It was a Sunday. And uh, uh, so uh, the downtown church in Tehran, uh, which is called St. Peter's, uh, they did meet there. They did worship on Sunday evening. So we, uh, we went to that service regularly. And so uh, we didn't even know about it till we arrived uh, at, the, at the congregation. And we arrived early to sort of fellowship with people. And they said, oh, yeah, uh, the students have overrun the, assembly, uh, the American embassy. Now, they had overrun the American embassy before uh, in, in February and uh, the previous year. And uh, the police had come in and squelled it and, and taken care of it. So we kind of we went, oh, oh, well, well, this is, you know, this is the way it is. And this will probably be cleared up in a day or two. And so we went to church, and, and then on the way home, I said to my wife, let's drive by the American embassy and see what's going on. And she said, well, why not? 
So uh, we're, it was on our way home anyhow. But when we got to the to the street where we would turn on to where the embassy was, the road, the streets were all blocked off. So we, it was obvious that there was something happening. So we decided to lower our heads and, and just go home. Uh, and so then we began to get worried because, you know, were they going to be looking for us? And other members of my church began to call me and say, Tat, should we be concerned? I said, well, I think you should stay home for a while. And about two or three days into it, Ayatollah Khomeini came on the radio and he said, please do not harass any American citizens living in the city. Our beef is with the uh, American government. And so uh, that kind of gave us a breather that the people were not looking for us. And so we continued on as we uh, had before. Uh, however, because there was no American embassy, I found Americans were contacting me for help. And there were some American businessmen that were Christians that didn't know the language. And what people don't realize is that not only did a revolution occur in the country, but every company went through a revolution. The workers took over. And so there were American businesses and companies there that were overrun by the employees. And then, um, you know, the American advisors and so on were kind of stuck. They didn't have anybody to work with them. So I had to help some find ways to get out of the country, not illegally, but just helping them linguistically to, uh, to do that. So it was a turbulent time. I would say that the stress level in our lives uh, was pretty high, uh, wondering, you know, what we're going to do. And, and about week two, or maybe, yeah, maybe even 10 days into it, our mission decided that my wife and children should leave the country for a while. And so it was very difficult, but I uh, sent my wife, Patty, and my son and daughter to London because I had a sister that lived in London and she was willing to house them for a while. And so I spent there a couple of weeks, keep thinking, you know, this is going to blow over. It's going to get better. And of course it didn't. And so I came out of Iran too around Christmas time and uh, we flew back to the States, spent Christmas uh, in the States. Both of my kids ended up needing surgery for various things and uh, my wife too and then we flew back to iran in february to continue our ministry did you feel and i'm thinking particularly in the days after november the 4th did you feel like all americans are are being hunted did you feel like you know if i step foot out of my doorway i could be i could be taken hostage i could be arrested how how much just fear did you have uh, not too much. Uh, uh, I think uh, just because we knew the language and we'd made friends with neighbors and uh, some people said we should have probably had more fear, but we, but we didn't. <laughs> Occasionally we would get yelled at like sort of the Yankee go home kind of thing uh, on the street. And I would answer them in Farsi and I'd say, could you repeat that in Farsi for me? I didn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> And so uh, then we would get phone calls because our, our phone number, we had an ad in the one English paper for the church, and we would get calls from people. I put this on the day after the, the takeover. I called the embassy number I had for the charged affair, Bruce Langan, who was the charged affair of the embassy. I called him because I was supposed to have an appointment with him the Monday after the hostage crisis. And one of the students who had run over, picked up the phone and pretended to be him. I decided that I would hang up pretty quickly. I didn't know if they could trace the call or whatever. So I, I hung up pretty quickly. But 
Um, no, I, I think the Lord granted us a special grace that we were stressed about the future and what would happen and how long we would be able to be there and, and that sort of thing. But I mean, I went out, I went to church, went shopping, did the, the normal things uh, without, and, and I had a car and I drove places. And um, after we'd been there a year, we tried to renew our residence permits. And they, at the police station, they said, no, 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 you have to go to the Islamic uh, the censorship uh, bureau or whatever it would be called in, in Farsi. And so I went there with a with a lawyer with me, a, a, a Jewish Christian man, actually, he was in a part of our Iranian church. I went there and I met, uh, met with a deputy of this department. And he said that we have instructions from above now that you are to leave the country and we're giving you 10 days to leave the country. And uh, that was sort of a shock, but uh, I'm standing there thinking, you know, you can't even find an open seat on an airplane for six months because everybody that's trying to leave the country, I had all kinds of thoughts how I was going to handle that. But I, I, I smiled at the guy. We talked English because he knew English and I didn't talk Farsi. That always makes them more suspicious when you can talk Farsi. So <laughs> I said, uh, I just want you to know, we, we've been here not from the American government, but from the Christians of America. And we were just here to serve your people and to share with them about God's love and mercy. And that's why we're here. I just want you to know what we were doing here. He didn't seem impressed at all while I was there, but I, I shared it anyhow. And then I, I walk out and I'm sort of stunned. What am I going to do? I don't have an American embassy to go to to help. I have nowhere to go. So I, the Lord said, go to the Swiss embassy. So I went to the Swiss embassy. Within 10 minutes, I was sitting in the ambassador's uh, office. And he said, what can I do? I said, well, here's what happened. The Iranian government's putting me out. And I don't even know how I'm going to get airline tickets. I mean, I have money, but I don't know how to do that. He said, well, what day do you want to go? I said, well, they give me 10 days. I said, we'll leave on the seventh day. That just seemed like a good biblical day to leave. <laughs> <laughs> And he picks up the phone and calls Swiss Air and says, you will put this family on the flight to Zurich on that day. And uh, so I went down and got our tickets. So to me, that was a big miracle mm -hmm. that that happened. And one other thing is we had $50,000 in a dollar account that was left over when the church was like, you know, 600 members. And I said, I do not want that money to go to the Islamic regime of Iran. It's $50,000 back then was a lot more than it is today. So I went to the bank and uh, I withdrew $50,000 in reals, which is a pretty handsome pile of money, actually, when you think about it. And I went to all of the Christian ministries from Campus Crusade, from the Bible Society, to the uh, camping ministry, and I gave away $49,000 in one day to all these different ministries. And two weeks later, President Carter puts an embargo on any funds going from the American church to the Iranian church. And so that money kept all those ministries going for the next year until they figured out ways for the American people that were supporting Campus Crusade and supporting uh, these other ministries to happen. So I just felt like God, God just did some amazing things. Christians in hostile nations may live far from us, as believers, we know that we are one with them and part of the body of Christ. As such, we can't ignore their suffering. If the Holy Spirit is impressing you to know more and support the work of Voice of the Martyrs, please visit our website at vom.com.au.
all donations of $2 and more are tax deductible in Australia. This has been a production of Vom Oz Radio, voice for the persecuted.